All right, good morning. It's good to see you this last Sunday in February. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 2. If it's been a while since you've been with us, or perhaps this is your first time ever, first of all, welcome. You should know that we are in the middle of a series on Genesis 1 through 3. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible and just preach through them verse by verse. And the reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. In the case of Genesis 1 to 3, we're convinced that if we're looking to have a biblical worldview and understanding of how God's made the world, perhaps there's no better place to turn than the first three chapters of the Bible. So that's where we are. Let me pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to dive into your word. It is a precious gift to us. The fact that you would reveal yourself to us through your word so that we might know you, so that we might know the way you made the world, so that we might know more about ourselves is a precious gift. And this morning, I pray that we would receive it in that way, that we would see it as a good gift from you to us. Help us to have ears to hear this morning. Help us to be ready to hear from your word, to value it, to value it, to treasure it, to see it as more precious than gold and silver. God, whatever distractions we bring in here this morning, whatever week we've had, whether it's been a great week or a hard week, we pray that we'd be able to set that aside in this moment and that we would be able to hear your voice loudly and clearly. Please, Lord, minister to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So having grown up in the United States, I've seen plenty of fireworks shows over the years. And since we've lived in Fremont, seven plus years now, that number has only increased and seemingly exponentially. No one loves backyard fireworks quite like Fremont. So I've seen my fair share of fireworks. And although that doesn't make me a fireworks expert or even a fireworks novice, I feel confident that it does at least qualify me to say that I know a good fireworks show when I see one. And without question and without hesitation, I can say that the best fireworks show that I've ever seen, and honestly, it's not even close, second place is, is one that took place in Louisville, Kentucky. Tony and I lived in Louisville for three years while I attended graduate school for ministry, and, after, and every year in Louisville, there was a massive fireworks show that takes place two weeks or sometimes three weeks before the Kentucky Derby. The fireworks show is part of the Kentucky Derby Festival, and the show itself is known as Thunder Over Louisville. There's actually an air show during the day, and then at night are the fireworks, and the fireworks are the main attraction. It's one of the largest annual fireworks displays in all of North America, and it attracts enormous crowds. On average, 625,000 people attend each year. In the year I went, 2006, attendance was estimated to be at closer to 800,000. It is mass chaos, but the show itself is spectacular. One of the things I remember most about Thunder Over Louisville is that you don't just see the fireworks or hear the fireworks, you feel the fireworks. They seem to echo through your chest, reverberate throughout your whole body. It's actually a little bit unsettling and yet awesome at the same time. For 30 minutes, it's just firework after firework after firework. It's like watching the grand finale of any other regular fireworks show, except the grand finale lasts throughout the whole show. That is until the end, when Thunder Over Louisville puts its own spin on what a grand finale is supposed to look like. Apparently, and I just learned this this week in reading about Thunder Over Louisville, the grand finale of Thunder Over Louisville has its own name, Gargantuan. And it's easy to see how it ended up with that nickname. It's three minutes of more fireworks than you thought were humanly possible. It is truly a gargantuan display. And it was the best part of the show. By the way, that's usually how fireworks work, isn't it? It's the best part of the show is the end. Gargantuan or not, it's the grand finality that we look forward to. When it comes to fireworks shows, we love a great finish. But actually, that's not just true as it relates to fireworks shows. Whether it be a sporting event or a movie or a concert or a television series, we have an affinity for something that finishes strong. 
We love when the action comes to a crescendo in a stunning final flourish. And perhaps it's because of our love for the spectacular ending or our love for a great grand finale that the end of the creation account in Genesis 2, 1-3 feels a little bit odd, maybe even anticlimactic. After brilliantly creating the universe in six days, including us, on the seventh and final day of creation, God rests. That feels a little bit like turning on the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter with two minutes left, only to find Patrick Mahomes taking a nap on the bench. I mean, on the seventh day, God rested. How is that a grand finale? Well, as it turns out, and there's a lot more to God's rest than maybe first meets the eye. It's not as anticlimactic of an ending as it may first seem. Furthermore, I think there are some serious implications for us in terms of how God has made the world, in terms of how he's made us, and in terms of how we should live in light of what we read in day seven. So while the ending of the creation account may feel less exciting than maybe we were anticipating, in the end, I would argue it's still a grand finale and one that we desperately need to pay attention to. It may not be the ending that we expected, but it is an ending that we needed. So Genesis 2, 1 to 3, if you will, please stand in our reverence for the reading of God's word. Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we've reached the final day of creation here. So verses 1 to 3, the word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So in the book of Genesis, I think it's pretty clear to us, the author of Genesis, ultimately the Holy Spirit, wants us to see the Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3 is one extended section. The chapter break is a little misleading in that way because I think it's pretty clear. It's supposed to go from 1-1 to 2-3. And we know this in part because of literary clues in the text. Namely, much of the language of Genesis 1-1, heavens, earth, created, creation, appears again here in Genesis 2 verses 1-3. to So clearly I think Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1-3 are meant to be bookends, one section. Beginning in Genesis 2-4, which we'll look at starting next week, the tension will shift more specifically to the creation of man and woman. But in Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, we have the creation count as a whole, days 1 through 7. And it's clear from the very beginning of our passage today that day 7 was just different than the rest of the days. A couple of weeks ago, we said that humans were the apex of God's creation, the crown jewel of his creative activity. And I think that's entirely true. The text itself pointed us in that direction. When at the end of day 6, after the creation of humans, God takes a step back and says, it is very good. Up until that point, it had been good, but after the creation of humans, God says it is very good. So I think it's fair to say that we are indeed the apex of his handiwork. But having said that, the climation of, or the, excuse me, the climax of the creation week is day seven. And again, there are all kinds of clues in the text to help us see that. For example, unlike the rest of the days, there's no introductory formula of, and God said. Every other day starts that way, and God said. But on day seven, there's no formula like that because God does not speak on day seven. His work of creation is done. Furthermore, whereas days one through six end with the formula, and there was evening and there's morning the first day, there's evening and the morning the second day, and so on and so forth, there's no such formula on day seven. Day seven is also the only day that is blessed by God and declared to be holy. He does not say this about any of the rest of the days. Moreover, whereas days one and four, two and five, three and six seem to pair together, day seven has no pair. It stands alone. 
And that structure of six plus one is seemingly highlighting the importance of this last day. Additionally, there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff happening linguistically in the description of day seven involving the number seven that also seems to be emphasizing the importance of the day. Case in point, the Hebrew text, in the Hebrew text, there are 35 words in verses one to three, with 35 being a multiple of seven. The three middle clauses, the beginning of verse two, the end of verse two, and the beginning of verse three all have seven words. And the adjective seventh is used in each of those three middle clauses. In fact, this seventh day is the only day of the seven days in which the number of the day, seven, is mentioned multiple times, and it's mentioned three times. The point is this. The seventh day breaks away from all of the patterns of the first six days, and in that way it is clear to us the seventh day is just different. It is the climax. It is the finish of the creation week. There's nothing more to be created, and so God rests. Now that begs an obvious question, doesn't it? What exactly does it look like for God to rest? Given what we know of God from the rest of Scripture, we can say with certainty, God is not resting in the sense that he is taking a nap, or in the sense that he's just so tired he needs to go to bed a few hours early. Isaiah 40 tells us that God is the everlasting God, and God does not grow faint or weary. God has no need then to remedy exhaustion because he never gets exhausted. So clearly for God to rest must mean something different than maybe how we typically think of rest. And I think the original language of the Old Testament helps us to understand that. The Hebrew word that is used for rest actually carries with it the connotation of ceasing. So it's not that God needed a nap, it's that he chose to cease from his creative work. He was done, it was finished. In the first six days, God perfectly carries out his plan for creation by speaking all things into existence. And on the seventh day, he stops his creative work and he rests. Now to be clear, as Jesus will tell us in the book of John, it's not that God is done working. In fact, he and the Father are working to this day. It's that he's ceasing from his creative work. And the fact that he blesses and sanctifies the day gives us a certain tone here. The tone in Genesis 2, 1 and 3 is one of reflection and delight and enjoyment. On day seven, God is stepping back and he is celebrating his achievement. His creation is good, the accomplishment complete. To use language of Bible scholar Alan Ross, on day seven, instead of creation and evaluation, which is what we saw on days one through six, there instead is finishing, ceasing, blessing, and sanctifying. There's no need for anything further, so God rests. In fact, the word rest is repeated multiple times in this text. He's resting, he's blessing and approving of his creative work. The seventh day then is the climax of the creation week because on that day God ceased from all that he had done. Instead he celebrates and delights in his creation. Now having said that, the question still remains, what are we supposed to do with this? As we say regularly here at Fremont and Free, the word of God is not just meant to be admired, it's meant to be applied. And so the question is, what do we do with a passage like this one? Clearly, there's some things that we're supposed to understand about God, but what difference does it make for us? What are the implications for us? I said earlier, I think there are multiple implications, but what are those? Or to ask another way, what lessons can we take away from day seven? Now, as always, I think there are a lot of ways we could answer that question, but let me just point to two lessons this morning. I think we can take away from this passage, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. All right, lesson number one is simply this. We need rest. We need rest. In Genesis 1 to 2, God works for six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. In doing, so, in doing so, not only is he carrying out his perfect plan for creation, 
but I also think he's establishing a pattern for us. And part of the reason why I say that to be true, that he's establishing a pattern, is because of what we read in Exodus chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, I'm actually going to ask you to turn ahead to Exodus 20, which is just one chapter ahead, Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. You can just listen as I read, and hopefully the words will be on the screen here shortly. So Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. I think this passage helps us to make some connections between Genesis and the pattern that God has established. So Exodus 20, starting in verse 8, says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the word Sabbath, which is obviously the focus in Exodus 20, actually comes from the Hebrew word meaning rest. And it's clear from Exodus 20 that the Sabbath day finds its origins back in Genesis 2. In the same way that God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh, the Israelites were being challenged here in Exodus 20 to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. Now, as you may already know, over time, the Israelites would take this command in all kinds of crazy directions. This is the fourth of the Ten Commandments, and this fourth commandment they would do some crazy stuff with. Eventually, there would be debates about whether a parent could pick up a child on the Sabbath, as that might constitute work. There were also debates about whether you could move a lamp from one place to another. There is even a debate about whether a person could wear false teeth on the Sabbath. I mean, it's crazy what they did with it. But as Jesus would so masterfully point out, those types of laws that were getting real nitpicky about what you could or couldn't do were missing the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Jesus would go on to say, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for man, not a burden. It was meant to be a day in which people cease from their labors as a way of demonstrating their trust in God as a way of demonstrating that they understood God had made the world in six days and he rested, and therefore on the seventh day, like God, we can delight in his creation. The Sabbath, hear this, was not just meant for avoiding work and sleeping more and following rules. It was about trusting God, resting in God's provision. It was a different kind of rest. And in saying that, again, it's helpful to think about how God rested. God did not rest on day seven by taking a nap. He rested by ceasing from his creating work, creative work and delighting in his creation. In the same way, we don't necessarily rest by just getting more sleep. Although as creatures, sleep is certainly part of the equation for us. But rather we rest by ceasing from our labor and thus demonstrating that we trust God and we trust in the work that he has done. At the end of the day, the Sabbath command was about the Israelites ceasing from their labor as a means of demonstrating their faith that God would provide. If you lived in an agrarian society, meaning a culture that revolved around agriculture, as most people throughout history have, the idea of setting aside one day of labor required a trust that on that day God would take care of you. And in Exodus 20, that's what the Israelites were being called to do. They were being called to set aside one day a week to cease from their labors and on that day, worship God and trust that God would provide. And this command that we see in Exodus 20 was based on the pattern of creation. That God worked six days and on the seventh day he rested. Now for the record, I should say this. 
I think the Sabbath command was actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ and is thus no longer in effect for Christians today, at least in the same way as it was for the Israelites. I say that because of passages like Colossians 2, 16 and 17, and Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. Both of those passages speak of the Sabbath day or observance of the Sabbath day as something that is no longer required of Christians. Now, neither one of those passages would condemn someone who tries to obey the Sabbath, but both of those passages, I think, teach that on this side of the cross, Sabbath day observance is a matter of personal conscience rather than a moral obligation. Furthermore, Colossians 2 uses some really important language in referring to the Sabbath. It talks about how the Sabbath is a shadow and Christ is the substance. Now that language of shadow and substance is really important and something we need to think about further and we'll do that in just a minute here. But the bottom line is this, we're no longer obligated to obey the Sabbath in the same way that the Israelites were. However, and this is a big however, I think the principle of the Sabbath command and the principle of the seventh day of creation being a day of rest are still in effect today. In other words, what I'm saying is this, we must still, because of the pattern which God established, be willing to rest from our labors as a way of demonstrating our trust in God. This is a pattern that God has established. The creation story, and in particular the seventh day, help us understand that as humans, we need rest. But the reality is we sometimes have a really hard time believing that, don't we? Because while we know that we're not God, we oftentimes live as if we are. We assume that the world needs us and is dependent upon us, and thus we feel like we can't rest. We also assume that we're stronger than we actually are, and thus we don't need rest. But neither one of those propositions or presuppositions is true. Part of being human is recognizing we are more replaceable than we'd ever like to admit. And we are more fragile than we would ever like to admit. When we actually take time to rest, we are acknowledging the truthfulness of both of those realities. We're acknowledging the world will be able to go on without us. We're also acknowledging that without rest, we can't function properly. If you feel like you are always needing to do something and you have no margin for rest in your life, that's a sign that you're both overestimating your own importance and underestimating your own weakness. But sadly, I think we do this all the time. In our culture, we tend to wear our busyness as a badge of honor. And in particular, in the Midwest, we love to flaunt how busy we are to others. In casual conversations, we'll just let people know, oh, we're just so busy. We don't have time to do anything. And we'll talk like that as if it's a credit to our account. We make it seem as if having no time to rest is a virtue to be prized rather than a warning sign that we have fundamentally misunderstood the way that God has made us. We were not made to work 100 hours per week. We weren't made to run 100 miles an hour all the time. We weren't made to work ourselves into the ground. Now to be sure, and make sure you hear me say this, we were made to work hard. Scripture plainly condemns laziness and idleness. It affirms the importance of a good work ethic. But in Genesis 2, it's also very clear, and this is something we see throughout the rest of the Bible, rest is a very real part of the equation, a very necessary part of the equation. To despise rest is to ignore the way in which God has made the world. It's to ignore the pattern that is set forth in Genesis 2. Having said that, though, I think it's important to clarify what we mean by rest. Again, if we're talking earlier, what does it mean for God to rest? It's helpful to ask the question, what does it mean for us to rest? 
Now again, as Genesis 2 would suggest, rest is not just getting a good night's sleep. Having said that, I should be clear, sleep is a very important part of understanding our limitation as humans. And study after study would show if you do not get adequate sleep, it's only a matter of time before your body pays in one way or another. Sometimes one of the most spiritual things you can do is take a nap. Because in doing so, you're recognizing I'm limited and I'm going to trust that God will sustain the world while I'm sleeping. But as we've already mentioned multiple times, sleep is not the only component of what it means to rest. As discussed earlier, God did not rest by taking a nap. Instead, he rested by ceasing from his work and delighting in his creation. And I think that's part of the pattern that we're meant to follow as well. We are to rest by ceasing from our normal labors and delighting in God's creation. Reflecting on God, reflecting on his world, and reflecting on his word. We weren't made to just be refreshed by closing our eyes. We're also made to be refreshed by fixing our eyes on him. And that's the part of the equation I think we often miss when it comes to a discussion that we have about rest in our culture. God designed us to rest from our labors one day a week. That's true. But he also designed us to find refreshment from him on those days. And it's because of that design that the reformers like John Calvin still stress the importance of setting aside one day a week to rest from our labors and to gather together with God's people while at the same time affirming that the ceremonial aspects of keeping the Sabbath have been abolished by Christ. In other words, the reformers like Calvin argued that while the Sabbath day may have been fulfilled in Christ, our need for rest is still ongoing. And specifically, the type of rest that draws our attention upward and allows us to be refreshed and find peace from God. This last week, I was talking with a dad about how sports and kids' activities are increasingly encroaching on Sunday mornings. Both of us were discouraged by that reality, but I can't say that either one of us were surprised. Because the fact of the matter is that the world around us clearly does not understand the biblical notion of rest. Rest is not just stopping from work so that you can go and watch your kids play sports. Now for the record, there's nothing wrong with watching your kids play sports. In fact, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do, to watch my kids do things they love. But to suggest that that is the totality of rest is to misunderstand the biblical notion of rest. Biblical rest is stopping from your work so that you can fix your eyes on God, so that you can find refreshment from Him, so that you can delight in the way that He's created the world. In other words, what I'm saying is this. What gives us rest is not just ceasing from our work. It's running to the one who actually refreshes. And in light of that, I would say this. I wonder if the reason why so many of us in this room feel frazzled, and exhausted, and spent. And by the way, I would guess just statistically speaking, that would describe a lot of you in this room. You just feel tired. You feel spent. You feel exhausted. I wonder if the reason why we feel that way is because we're not getting the actual rest that we need. Let me ask it this way. On a week-to-week basis, how much are you prioritizing the importance of getting biblical rest? Again, by saying that, I'm asking, how much are you prioritizing spiritual refreshment? How much are you prioritizing getting your eyes fixed on God, ceasing from your labors so that you can be refreshed by God? We see this pattern in Genesis 2. Six days of work, one day set aside to find refreshment from God. Now to be sure, getting this type of rest is not easy. It's not easy because in setting aside your work, you have to trust that God will provide for you on the day that you're not working. And it's not easy because in prioritizing spiritual refreshment, you have to set aside things that are good and feel important. But while it may not be easy, 
To deny our need for rest and spiritual refreshment is to forget the way in which God has designed us. As we see in Genesis 2, rest was built into the design of creation. I suspect that many of you in this room right now are feeling spiritually weary and depleted. Do not ignore that feeling. When I was a kid, cars wouldn't tell you how many miles you had until you were empty. Any more cars today say you have 83 miles until you run out of gas. But back when I was a kid, back in my day, we didn't have that warning of there's 83 miles. In fact, we just had an old-fashioned gas gauge. Kate, if you want to throw that slide up there. All right, you'll just have to imagine in your head what it looks like. It won't be hard. I can describe it with my words. It will be fun. Right? You just had a gauge that had an F on one end and an E on the other. And in between, you would have a bunch of tick marks. And when you got close to the E, you knew it was about time to fill up. But here's the thing. Because you really didn't know how many miles you had left, there was always a temptation to think, I can go just a little bit further. Or at least that's the tactic that our family would often employ. And most of the time, it turned out okay. We would get well past the, we're like, oh, we're okay. But at least on one occasion, I think I've shared this story before, there was a story in our family where we ran out of gas and had to push the car to the gas station. My point is, maybe you can get away for a while ignoring your gas gauge. But if you ignore it on a regular basis, eventually you're going to get burnt. And I would say the same thing. Do not ignore the signs that you are running on spiritual empty. If you feel weary or depleted, if you feel like you're not refreshed in Christ, if you feel like you are just tired spiritually, do not ignore your gas gauge. Instead, prioritize biblical rest and refreshment. And hear this, do whatever it takes to find it. If you were physically sick, I'm guessing that you would spare no effort and no expense to try to get better. I know this has been the case in our family. When Tani got sick, and she wasn't getting better, we started to reach out to doctors all over the place, trying to figure out what can we do. And when we settled on Mayo Clinic as our first option, there was no expense that we weren't willing to pay to try to get Tanya better. When we first got our appointment scheduled at Mayo, we weren't sure if insurance was going to approve. But you know what? I didn't care. I really didn't care because I thought the most important thing right now is getting my wife healthy. And so I just figured we'll trust God, and if we have to go bankrupt, if we have to empty our bank account to try to help her get better, it will be worth it. Now, thankfully, God did provide in kind of a crazy answer to prayer. That's another story for another time. It was an amazing blessing. Insurance did approve. But the point I'm driving at here this morning is this, that we were willing to inconvenience ourselves to the point of even going bankrupt, if necessary, to try to get my wife physically healthy. And I'm guessing you would do the same for someone you loved. You would do the same for yourself. But my question for you this morning is this, do you have that same mentality towards your spiritual health? Are you as serious about your spiritual health as you would be about your physical health? Listen, I recognize that setting aside one day a week to cease your work and prioritize your relationship with God, I understand that's costly. I know that it means we might have to give up a few more dollars because we're not working. I know it means you might have to pass on some events you really like. I know it might mean that you have to reschedule or, or reorient your schedule for kid and family activities. But hear me, your spiritual health is worth it. There is nothing more important in the world than being spiritually healthy. Your physical health is of some value. In fact, if you've ever lost your physical health, you know if it's, it, it is of great value. But your spiritual value is even more valuable. Or your spiritual health is even more valuable because in the end, it lasts into eternity. So set aside your pride. 
and thinking you're so important that the world can't go on without you. Set aside your desire to be approved by your peers that everyone else is doing this and set aside the entanglements of this world and instead prioritize the pattern of Scripture. Set aside one day a week to rest in God. By the way, you'll notice I haven't given a lot of details as to what this might look like. What does it look like to set aside one day a week and pursue biblical rest? And the fact that I haven't given details is intentional. Because I don't want to give the impression here that following Genesis 2 is as simple as checking boxes. That was actually the pattern that the Pharisees fell into. In fact, there's this document that I think it was with the Puritans when maybe they first came to the United States or maybe even when they're back in England, that they had 39 pages of Sabbath rules. Right? 39 pages. We do not want to get in that pattern. I do not want to become a modern-day Pharisee this morning. That's not the goal. The goal is not just to say, do this and do this and do this, and you fulfilled the goal of Genesis 2. That's, that's not the goal. For every Christian, spiritual refreshment will look a little bit different. Now, on the basis of Hebrews 10, I think we can safely conclude that gathering together weekly with God's people is an important part of give, getting biblical rest. I think we could also come to the conclusion that spending time with other Christians and prayer and Bible reading are means God uses to refresh us. But again, to figure out what it looks like to fulfill the pattern of Genesis 2 or to fulfill the heart of the Sabbath command will look different for every Christian. But the important thing is you recognize you need rest. You need spiritual refreshment. It's important that you live in light of that reality. And so here's my challenge for you this morning. While I'm not going to tell you exactly how you should do this, because I think that would be unwise, my challenge for you is to consider what does it look like for me to take the pattern of Genesis 2 seriously? My challenge for you this week is to actually give some thought. What would it look like for me to take this seriously? Maybe that means at lunch today, you discuss as a family, what would it look like for us as a family to live in light of Genesis 2, to live in light of the Sabbath command? Or maybe you spend some time journaling on your own later this week and answering the question, how do I pursue biblical rest? Or maybe there's another tactic that you want to employ. That's great. Again, I'm not trying to get you to check boxes here. Whatever works for you, that's fantastic. My challenge for you, though, is simply this, to give thought. How do we live in light of the pattern that we see in Genesis 2? Again, I think the Sabbath command has been fulfilled in Christ, but the principle of Genesis 2 is still intact. By the way, there's one more thing I think I need to say here. To talk about this, getting spiritual rest, is not a burden. It is a blessing. Listen, I have to eat every day, and I need to take showers. But I don't see either one of those as burdens that need to be fulfilled. Rather, I see them as a blessing. I like eating food. And if I have to go a long time without taking a shower, I feel kind of gross. So eating and personal hygiene are necessities, that's true, but they are also blessings. The same is true with rest. Yes, it is a necessity, but it is a blessing to get rest. So be humble enough this morning to recognize you need rest and not just the rest that comes from a nap, you need refreshed by running to the one who actually gives rest. All right, so that's the first lesson from Genesis 2. And if you're worried, don't worry, the second one will not be as long. We will not be here all day, all right? Lesson 2, though, is just as important, if not more so. And the second lesson from Genesis 2 is simply this. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Now let me read from Genesis 2, 1 to 3 again. Genesis 2, starting verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now you might ask yourself the question, 
Okay, how in the world does that text point us to our need for Jesus? After all, if you're paying attention, Jesus was not mentioned in what I just read. And yet, I would say this, the theme of rest that first appears here in Genesis 2 is a theme that will appear throughout Scripture and will, in the end, clearly point us to our need for Christ. To show you what I mean, I'm going to ask you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. So that's in the New Testament. If we can get the sides working, we'll throw it up there. If not, we can just listen again. So Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 10. All right, so what I'm arguing is the theme of rest that we see in Genesis 2 is all over the Scripture. And in particular, it shows up in a very meaningful way in Hebrews chapter 4. All right, so right before the book of James, you find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Again, if you don't have your Bibles, that's fine. You can just listen along as I read here. So Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 10. All right, you're going to notice that the word rest is going to pop up quite a bit in this chapter. Verse 1, chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever's entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. All right, interestingly enough here, Hebrews 4 is quoting liberally from Genesis 2 and is doing so as a means of pointing us to our need for Jesus. As we said earlier, the Sabbath day is a shadow and Christ is the substance. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, which Jim read earlier, Jesus invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him so they can find rest. Now in doing so, again, Jesus is not saying, come to me so you can take a nap. No, he's saying, Come to me so that you no longer have to work. Come to me with all of your efforts and all of your work and all of your anxiety and lay them down and put your trust in me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. And if you come to me, you will find rest. In other words, Jesus is inviting us in that passage to believe. He's inviting us to cease from our work and to recognize we can find rest in him. At the heart of God's design then for the Sabbath command or the Genesis 2 pattern is the idea that we must rest from our labor and we must put our trust in God. Jesus did this perfectly, by the way, when he walked on the earth. And we are to enter into the rest that's talked about in Hebrews 4 by entrusting ourselves to Christ. Here's the reality. We could try to get right with God on the basis of our own labor, but it will never accomplish what we're trying In the end, we'll just leave us exhausted and frustrated. The only way to be right with God is to cease from our work, to acknowledge we can't do it, and instead put our trust in Jesus. This is the reality that Genesis 2 is ultimately pointing us towards, that you will never be good enough on your own to earn God's favor. You will never do enough on your own to earn God's approval. You'll never be able to work hard enough on your own to stand in his presence. And so the encouragement of Jesus in Matthew 11 and here in Hebrews 4 is stop trying. 
Cease from your work and rest in Christ. Bring all of your burdens to Him. Bring all of your effort to Him and rest in Jesus. To follow the pattern of Genesis 2 then and to obey the Sabbath commandment is ultimately to rest in the finished work of Jesus. We rest from our work because He already did the work. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we were supposed to die. So, run to Him. If you're feeling weary and heavy burdened, and I'm guessing maybe you are, because we live in a broken world. If you're feeling weary and heavy burdened, cease from your work and look to Christ. You'll never be able to do it on your own, but the good news is you don't have to, because Christ did it for you. So rest in Him. And here's the really good news. If we trust in Christ, there's an even greater rest that's awaiting us. As Hebrews 4.9 informs us, a Sabbath rest is still awaiting the people of God. And that Sabbath rest will be fulfilled on the final day when we are able to fully and finally rest from our earthly labors. And that way you could argue not only is Genesis 2 helping us to understand how things started, but Genesis 2 is also pointing us to the end. It's pointing us to the final rest that is coming because of the work of Christ when we will be able to cease from all of our earthly labors and rest fully and completely in Him. So listen, I understand at first glance, the end of the creation week feels a bit anticlimactic. After all, a day of rest doesn't feel like much of a grand finale. But as it turns out, Genesis 2 is more than just an ending that we didn't expect. It's an invitation to join God in His rest. And ultimately, it's an invitation to put our trust in Christ. So Fremont Ephraim, my challenge for us this morning is, let's be a church that knows how to rest. But more importantly, let's be a church that knows where to find rest. We find it in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I admit there are still a lot of questions I have about this passage in terms of how it's lived out. But I know this. We were made to rest. We were made to rest. Now, I know we were made to work hard. I know that we were made to Uh, to be diligent in all that we do. But at the end of the day, part of the pattern of the way you've created us is that we must rest. And that rest is not just in the form of getting sleep, although that's part of it, but it's also in the form of trusting in you, resting in you, fixing our eyes on your created work. What this looks like, I'll admit, I'm not exactly for sure. But I pray that you give each of us wisdom in this room to figure out how do we live in light of Genesis 2? How do we live in light of this pattern of rest that we see in Scripture? Lord, please help us to take this seriously. Help us to live in light of the way that you created us. Help us to find rest, and ultimately help us to run to Jesus to find rest. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.